Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Merrick Garland and the Supreme Court. All right, Richard, since the last time that you and I spoke, uh, President Obama has nominated Merrick Garland, chief judge of the D.C. Circuit at the moment, to replace Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. There's a lot of angles you and I can take here, but why don't we just start with the basics. What kind of judge is Merrick Garland? Well, the first thing is he's a career judge. I think he was appointed by Clinton around 1995, uh, which means that he's been on the court for over 20 years. He's 63, so he got appointed in his 40s. Before that, he was a prosecutor, evidently a very good prosecutor who had responsibility for Oklahoma City and other type situations. Um, so essentially, he looks like the standard meritocratic candidate, uh, does very well in some kind of executive and administrative position having to do with the administration of justice. Since he's a Washington insider already, he gets himself appointed to the court. Um, everybody who knows him says he's fair-minded, diligent, intelligent. Some people rate him a lot higher than even that. Others, perhaps of a different political orientation or a bit more skeptical. Uh, being Chief Justice of the District of Columbia Circuit Court is obviously an honor. It's also one that depends on seniority. Uh, the oldest judge who hasn't had the position who's under the age of 70, I think, is the one who gets it. And Garland gets it. So if you're trying to figure out whether or not this is an impressive perch from which to move, uh, the answer that everybody would have to give is yes. Uh, so in terms of the sort of standard credentials, he's fine. The one thing that has troubled some people, and I, I think it actually troubles me, even though I'm guilty of the very same sin, um, if you look at the current distribution of talent on the Supreme Court in the age of diversity, this is not a diversity appointment. Uh, Garland is Jewish. He comes from Chicago, which is a big city. I think he went to the Harvard Law School. Um, I think if you look at all the justices on the Supreme Court, I think they only graduated from Harvard and Yale at present, um, which I think is a bit troublesome. There are no Protestants on the court. There's no, nobody who essentially is not uh, very much beholden to the Northeastern corridor. And to me, this is in fact, something that matters. Justice Scalia, in one of his more perceptive remarks on Obergefell, said, look, if I thought that what we were interested in was interpreting and explicating legal texts with a series of standardized um, tools, I would not much care as to where people came from because their individual values and preferences would not influence the judgment. But now, in effect, we have an age in which people who think themselves as being bound to use this spare set of tools um, are regarded as very suspect and you have to have more capacious visions on things, decide what's right and wrong to do what our friend Justice Kennedy said. Well, I've listened to all the arguments pro and con on gay marriage, and now I'm quite convinced that the thing ought to be constitutional, and so therefore the Equal Protection Clause is the vehicle in which I prefer things. Well, at that point, you really do want to have a more diverse body than the one that we have, and we don't have it. We have a Supreme Court of elites. Uh, Justice Scalia was one of those elites. He didn't start out as an elite guy. He basically was raised in rather humble circumstances, goes to Xavier High School, Georgetown, finishes first in his class, is a member of an extremely able class at the Harvard Law School at a time when the school was in its prime. And Garland, you know, a little bit younger than this by about 17 years, is pretty much in the same kind of mold. So um, the president thought everybody would be very comfortable with this appointment. And as I like to say sometimes, if this had been 
an appointment to replace, say, a retiring Justice Ginsburg, where there was no change in control in the court's direction, I don't think there would be anything like the, the opposition. Um, but now you get an amalgam of arguments, some based on his political position, some based on the time of the nomination coming so close to the election, uh, that it's quite clear that ever since Bob Bork got borked, as we now say, um, this nomination is going to be a lot rockier than one would have thought if we had been dealing in more tranquil times. Okay, so obviously we have this political logjam here with the Republicans in the Senate refusing to take up the nomination. Let's put that aside for a moment and just think about this purely on the merits. There has been a debate within both parties for a long time about what the proper criteria are for confirming a justice who is nominated by a president from the opposing party. So, so for instance, the vast majority of Republicans in the Senate are going to disagree with the vast majority of potential justices nominated by President Obama on most of the fundamentals of constitutional law. Is, is there a reasonable standard in your mind for an opposition party to differentiate between who they could support as a matter of deference to the president and sort of civic norms and who they'd have to oppose as a matter of principle? Well, I mean, the first thing, of course, is you always look for attacks on the basis of insufficient quality. And, you know, these can really take hold. Harriet Myers was so manifestly unqualified for the United States Supreme Court that even members of her own party recoiled in horror when she sought to make her first courtesy tour through the Senate. Um, so those are easy. But if you're trying to figure out what a minimum level of competence is, and you've got yourself a nation which has, say, six or seven hundred appellate judges, large numbers of very distinguished civil servants in Washington and elsewhere, the thought that you can't meet the qualifications requirement based upon you know distinguished record, legal skills, and the rest of it, that's always going to happen. You can meet that. You don't always do it, but you know, there were some appointments, um, Harold Carswell was one, where there were real doubts on that particular score. Uh, so in the end, it's going to be the question about politics. And it used to be that the differences of opinion between left and right on the Supreme Court may have been um, large, but they weren't organized along party lines. I mean, let me just go back, say, to the 1920s and 1930s and go look at the, what happened when the switch in time took place in 1937 and the classical liberal views gave way to the other views, i.e. the progressive views. And you're trying to figure out who was on the Supreme Court at that time. And you know, I may not get all of these guys right, but I, I think I can kind of say something of it. Uh, first of all, what happens is you have Benjamin Nathan Cardozo. Uh, he is an extremely able judge at the state law level, regarded as one of the greats. Uh, he is a Democrat. His father was in Tammany Hall, and he's appointed by a Republican, and he's part of the five-member majority. And then if you're trying to figure out who else is in this majority, there's Harlan Fiststone. Most people don't know who he is, uh, but he was, in effect, a graduate of the Amherst College. He becomes a professor and dean of the Columbia Law School. He becomes the attorney general of Calvin Coolidge. And when I read Amity Shays' book, I now discovered why he was picked. Uh, they went to Amherst together, low those many years before. Um, and he then becomes part of the majority. There's Charles Evans Hughes. Charles Evans Hughes has, you know, one of the two or three greatest resumes of somebody in the first half of the 20th century who never served on the Supreme Court, you know, rather uh, never was president. He served on the Supreme Court once in 1910 or 1911 to 1960. 
16. He was the Taft appointee. He gets appointed again by Hoover. Um, in the interim, he's Secretary of State. He runs for president. He's one of the great appellate lawyers before the United States Supreme Court, a kind of consensus, all-American, um, first-generation um, you know, five-year admissions into the Hall of Fame kind of guy. He's appointed, and he's also on the liberal side. And then you get Owen D. Roberts, um, and it turns out, well, who's he? Um, he is, again, somebody who I think was the dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and he goes, as if you look at what's going on here, um, in the, basically, the coalition, and then there's Louis Brandeis, right, um, who's, again, Harvard, very distinguished. These are guys who have credentials that, uh, you know, at least some of them, just dwarf the kinds of credentials that you're talking about, even with somebody as able as Garland, because they have much more worldly experience. And you sort of put this whole coalition of five people together, and at least three of them are appointed by Republican presidents and so forth. Um, and nobody would have predicted that the issues would become that large at that particular point in time. And then if you start looking at the other side, at least one of the most conspicuous members of the holdout four was a man named McReynolds, who was, in fact, a Southern racist to some extent, an embittered bachelor, who was appointed by um, Woodrow Wilson in part because he didn't want him in the cabinet anymore because he was so disagreeable. McReynolds' great achievement in the world was that every time Louis Brandeis spoke, he managed to put a newspaper in front of his face so he didn't have to look at him. So much was his anti-Semitism. And when, in fact, our friend Brandeis retired, uh, seven other Supreme Court justices signed the letter wishing him well, uh, Justice McReynolds did not. So, I mean, you're dealing with a completely different kind of culture. And I think what happens is every precedent that you try to take from before Bob Bork and bring it to explain what's happening now is, in fact, um, just utterly irrelevant because of the complete change in constitutional attitudes and structures that started, I think, quite conspicuously in 1987, perhaps a little bit earlier with Clement Hainsworth in 1972. Or one Richard, uh, George Will wrote a column last weekend in which he criticized Republicans for not considering Garland. <sighs> he offered up several rationales, one of which was the prospect of Donald Trump nominating the next justice. But he also said this, quoting him here, the past 25 justices confirmed, beginning with Dwight Eisenhower's 1954 nomination of Earl Warren as chief justice, the 63-year-old Garland is the second oldest nominee the average age of the 25 was 53. So Obama's reach into the future through Garland is apt to be more limited than it would be with a younger nominee, close quote. An older judge, a relatively moderate judge, you could argue that the deal that's on the table is pretty good relative to the risk of foregoing it. How do you score that out? Well, I understand what he's saying, and, and this is how I score it out, is that um, essentially 63 translates into 15 or 16 years of service on the Supreme Court, treating 80 as the year in which these people are likely to resign. Uh, to some extent, that's a constitutional eternity. And, and what the Democrats are saying is we get the first 15 years, we fix this thing in the way in which we want it. If this thing gets unglued later on, it's going to be a much more difficult task for the Republicans to turn the clock back than if he's not there. Uh, so I think, in effect, what's happened is 
the president is giving up 10% of the ball of wax in order to get 90. I think it's a better deal for him uh, than it is for the Republican. I might add that there is now some movement um, to try and limit Supreme Court justices to 18 years. A friend of mine named Elon Mazel, I think, wrote something in USA Today taking that position. I've actually advanced it some years ago. I think a service for life is a terrible mistake. I think 18-year terms, every two years you face one of these things, and then with the occasional um, death or resignation in between, I think it's a much more stable position, but it requires a constitutional amendment to succeed. But I do not believe that the Republicans will uh, take this particular position. Uh, one of the other things, of course, that's notable is it was quite common at one time for people to resign from the Supreme Court. They either didn't like it or they didn't care or whatever. So, you know, you get Sherman Minton, who's there for seven years so, and Charles Whitaker, who's there for seven years, um, Truman appointments and an Eisenhower appointment. The idea that somehow or other you're just bound to stay there until they take you out feet first was not something that was particularly common early on, and since there were shorter time horizons and there was less of a division, uh, you didn't get the kind of battle royal that's likely to take place here. I don't think there will be a hearing, actually, um, under these circumstances. I think uh, it's a unilateral decision by McConnell, and none of the Republicans want to fight him on that, so I think it will stand. But I think there will be a huge war of words that is going to start to take place, which can only have a negative effect on the institution and on Mr. Garland himself who is, in effect, as I said in the thing I wrote on the Hoover column, something of a political pawn in this current debate. Richard, there's pretty widespread agreement from everyone who's not either a member of the U.S. Senate or a member of an advocacy group that the confirmation process for the Supreme Court justices is in some way fundamentally broken, that it's too partisan, that it's too politicized. Justice Scalia made that argument while he was alive. Chief Justice Roberts actually made it very shortly before Scalia's death. There was a recent piece in the New York Times observing this trend and even speculating in there that it might be time for Chief Justice Roberts to step out and make the case for Republicans in the Senate to consider Judge Garland. To your mind, that suggestion, would that be an exercise in courage on the chief justice's part or would it be improperly inserting himself in the political process? Oh, my God. He did make a speech about two weeks ago or three weeks ago in which he said that the thing had been politicized. And he went out of his way to talk about Sotomayor and Kagan as excellently qualified justices that deserve their position on the court. I think as the chief justice, he has to say things like that, whether he believes them or not. And I would rather right. that he believe them than not, not believe them because if you don't believe them and you start saying it, then in addition to all of our other pains and woes, we now have hypocrisy on the game. Uh, but I think, in effect, by virtue of the fact that he's doing it ex officio, he will persuade nobody of the truth of the particular point. Um, what happens is the reason we have very contentious hearings are twofold. One is that there's a deep division of opinion about what is the proper course in the United States. When I listen to liberals and conservatives talk separately. There's a kind of a cold anger in their voices about all the terrible things that are happening on the other side. Uh, my former Chicago colleague, uh, Cass Sunstein's like to talk about incompletely theorized agreements, but that's not the world we're in. We're in a world of completely theorized disagreements. Nobody's under any illusion of what is happening with respect to anybody. So as far as I can see, if you're starting to work at the landscape, you can't 
do it. The second thing is we've changed the nature of the hearings. Um, it was, I think, only Felix Frankfurter who, in his usual vain fashion, says, I would like to appear at the hearings on my confirmation. The most controversial hearing before then, there were a couple of them, but one was Louis Brandeis, and you know there were five days of hearings, and he did not appear. The attitude was... You can look at the man's record. People could speak for or against him. But to put him up there is essentially to have invite games of verbal gymnastics one way or another, where people will simply evade the truth, uh, hem and haw, not state what they think, uh, because it's just too awkward. And they will always be, I can't talk about that now, because it may be something that came before me in adjudication. Uh, Justice Kagan, when she was Professor Kagan, said, I don't like any of that stuff. And when she became nominee Kagan, she bobbed and weaved with the best of them on just that issue. So I think, in effect, if you want to improve the situation, you don't let the candidate testify or the nominee testify. Notice I use a word like candidate, which suggests it's more political than it really <laughs> is, um, which gets me a little bit nervous about my own perspective on these things. Um, have everybody else shoot it out and keep them away. That might lower the temperature a little bit because otherwise you're going to get softball questions on the one hand and sneering derision on the other hand, and none of it is going to do any good. But I think the term limits proposal would also tend to tamp this down, not completely, because 18 years is a very long term, uh, but at least it will change something of the dynamics. But the basic point here, Troy, is there's nobody has a fix for electoral politics who says, hey, you know, there's really sharp division now with Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz. Um, What are we going to do to fix it? Well, there's nothing you can do to fix it if you want to have election. Either you basically change the consensus view in the United States and and close the chasm, or this will happen with every future nomination. And indeed, I think if you were to ask the Republicans on Breyer, they would say, well, maybe yes, maybe no. On Ruth Ginsburg, a consensus candidate, I think they would say we would never let that go through again because as far as we're concerned, she's pretty far to the left. And, you know, they are right about all of this. So um, there is no illusions at this particular point. The depth of the opposition on both sides is really deep and I think is what you see is what you're going to get. So until you get bulletproof majorities, this is going to be a struggle all the way down and I, 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 I'm utterly at a loss to figure out what I can do to persuade people who are at war with each other to yield to my greater wisdom and be kind and reasonable in dealing with their opponents. To that point, that's the last thing I'll give you. I want to read you something from a column that appeared in the week. By Paul Waldman. And let me note here that Paul Waldman is a progressive. The relevance of that will become clear in a moment. Regarding the Garland nomination, he says that this is – and I'm quoting here – the breakdown of our political system in action. The problem is not the Republicans growing ideological extremism, troubling though that may be. The problem is that they decided some time ago that there are rules and there are norms. And while rules need to be followed, norms can be torn down whenever they find that doing so advances their momentary political goals. That's the end of the quote. So you and I don't need to litigate the question of who's more at fault here. Waldman says it's conservatives. I think a lot of people on the right would make the argument in the opposite direction. Let's assume for the sake of this conversation that we place the blame equally between the two parties. Is there something, though, to that underlying critique that it's norms, that it's the sort of the micro concessions that sort of lubricate civic life, a sense of kind of small r Republican decorum that's eroding? Um, I'm going to make you a political philosopher. 
because I think <laughs> you're absolutely right on everything that you've said. Look, uh, let's get away from the government first and start talking about private businesses. And what you discover, for example, is that they're contracts, which often are contracts at will, i.e. I can fire you for good reason, bad reason, and no reason at all. And you could do the same thing with respect to quitting. And yet every time there's a replacement with respect to an employee in a well-functioning business, these soft norms take over. What kind of notice you give, what kind of severance pay you give, what sort of recommendations you give, how long people will stay when they've announced that they're leaving and so forth. And you could tell a well-run institution when these transitions take place without some real bitterness and anxiety. And you could tell a poorly run institution when people are told they're going to leave on Friday or leave voluntarily. There's no farewell party. There's no goodbye. Uh, just here today and gone tomorrow. And it's norms that lubricate. It's exactly what happens in government. If you look at what the Constitution says, it has a skeletal outline. The president shall nominate. Subtext. When? Not so clear. Is it a week, a month, right. a year? Well, right. for the most part, he's going to want to do it very quickly because it's his interest in putting up. There's nothing which says that the Senate shall consider uh, these things. It says, and with the vice and consent of the Senate, um, shall appoint. Uh, but there is no corollary of the duty on the Senate. And, you know, you could go back from the beginning of time, and there are many people who never got a hearing. Um, these you know, antedates the current battles because many of the battles were over political appointments, ambassadors, um, and various cabinet ministers as opposed to Supreme Court justices. And we don't have a legal norm on that. And so the answer is the social norm is we do this um, within a reasonable time if circumstances permit. But do we do it for every candidate? I don't think we necessarily have to do it for everyone. Well, then you got to get another norm one way or another. Norms work only through reciprocity. Uh, so if you have a Democrat in the presidency and a Democrat in the Senate or Democratic Senate, norms don't matter because they're on the same page. Same with RR. But if it's RD or DR, at that point you need the norms. And the moment it turns out that there's a deviation from the norm in any one cycle, uh, then if you flip over RD to DR, all of a sudden the other guy is going to say, they did it to me, I have to do it to them. So what makes these norms so critical is they have to be in the temple. They have to essentially govern relationships not for a single term uh, but for multiple terms one way or another. And that's what's completely gone. And with the change in personnel, everything is now going to be push it all to the limit. Uh, the president plays this game like everybody else, but in this position – he was handed a huge gift by the untimely death of Justice Scalia, and uh, no matter what happens, he's better off having a nomination than he is um, leaving his term without having any nomination at all. So the Republicans are trying to control the damage, and they're going to be very tough on this guy because they fully sense the enormity of the stakes. Let me just sort of give you another way. Um, one of the things that one has to remember is that Justice Scalia was on the court, and you know he's a pretty vocal guy. I mean, I think his reaction that I hear through the grapevine, and I knew him and a lot of his friends pretty well, is that when the Bush people nominated um, David Souter uh, to fill the seat on the Supreme Court, he said, oh my God, they've given away another one. And if you go back and you start even in calmer times with Eisenhower appointing Brennan in order to carry New Jersey in 1956 when he won by a landslide and have him sit there for 34 years, it's the same kind of a situation. So uh, people look 
look at the past situations, they see what's happened, and they're determined to avoid a repetition. And the history on this is one way. I did a brief calculation of trying to figure out uh, Republican nominees who became Democratic votes on the Supreme Court for about a 50-year period, roughly from the appointment of um, Earl Warren in 1954 uh, to the resignation of Sandra Day O'Connor in 2005. And it was close to basically three seats a term of people who were in fact nominated by Republicans who turned out to be something akin to Democrats. That is just an unbelievable switch. And if you think about it, as Warren and Brennan and Blackman becoming a liberal and Stevens becoming a liberal and Suda becoming a liberal, um, and then you could take bits and pieces of the other justices on there, um, it's really a very powerful thing. That's not going to happen again. Um, there's just too much on this. So I think we are condemned to live this fate until we as a nation get a consensus as to what we believe in. I think, in fact, far from getting a consensus, given the political election and given what you hear by way of political philosophy, there are deep divisions. The sad thing for me is that my kind of limited government, private property view is not the dominant view on either the right or the left today. So I look at this as an independent, somewhat saddened observer thinking about how difficult the situation has become and how little that somebody like myself can do to change it. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.